You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone, for joining us tonight in person, as well as those, those of you who are watching online or will watch online. Um, we're happy that you all could spend some time with us this evening. Um, there are snacks up here, coffee, water, assortment of many things. Um, so at any point, feel free to get up and get some snacks if you want. There Also, if you've never been here, the bathrooms are either through that back door, this door, or down the stairs, and just like the hallway that goes that way. Uh, so that's where the bathrooms are. So again, feel free at any point in the evening to get up and move around or walk around. Um, that's no problem at all. Uh, before we get into uh, the book of Ruth, if you have not been here, can you raise your hand so that my wife can give you uh, the material that we're going to be using? Just keep those hands up so she can just hand those out. Abby over here too. Zach, did you make the brownies? Zach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Zach, for making uh, brownies. If you don't know Zach, he's uh, all of a sudden an expert baker. Um, also, thanks for, to Zach and Pastor Riz, who have been running around trying to get everything set up. Zach's literally been running around trying to get the live stream set up, so we're super thankful for everyone who's not just here, but helps in the process. Um, How's everybody doing? Good? Yeah? Good for a Wednesday evening? Yeah, all right, cool. Well, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, if you were here last week, we kind of did more of an introduction to the, to the book of Ruth um, and talked a little bit about the seven steps that we are going to be going through on a week-to-week basis that are several, seven simple steps to Bible study. And if you've been to our um, Philemon class or our previous Jonah class, these steps will be be similar. And if this is your first week, I think you'll just be able to pick up and kind of see exactly what we mean by these seven steps. Um, And so can somebody tell me what step number one is? Pray. All right. So step number one is pray. Would somebody besides Jackson like to pray for us tonight? (laughs) Yeah, he always prays, so that's why. Anybody? All right, thank you.
Amen. Thank you so much. All righty. So step number one is uh, pray and invite the Holy Spirit to lead us in our study of the text. So thank you so much uh, for praying. Step number two is uh, read. And so last week, if you were here with us, we read through the whole book from beginning to end. And so we always um, advise you to do that before you start going in kind of verse by verse. And so Uh, We did that last week, and so this week we're just going to be focusing in on chapter 1. And in that handout that you guys have, that's pretty much everything should be in there. So the text is going to be in there, and if you brought your Bible, then you're a really good Christian. Uh, But if we can, just stick to the text in front of you, the ESV, just so we're on the same page. It's not because the ESV is the best translation um, or version. It's just the one that we can all follow along with. And so we're going to be reading from the ESV. And uh, we're going to be reading chapter 1. And so if you want to turn there with me, I'm just going to read it out loud. And you guys can feel free to follow along in the text. So in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judea or Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and his, the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and shall bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for the sake of that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. They then lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you will go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? 
So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. All right, that's Ruth chapter 1. For most of us, probably many of us, maybe not all of us, Ruth is a pretty familiar book, especially that line kind of middle way through where Ruth pledges her, her loyalty to Naomi. That's a popular verse, right? Um, and there's a lot of amazing stuff in this book that I'm really excited to kind of uh, talk with you this evening and kind of hear from you guys uh, what the Lord's going to speak to us. And so step number two is read. Once again, it's always good to read from beginning to end. If you're just going to read a passage, we also recommend just read the ch- whole chapter. Um, that helps you understand not just the content of that chapter, but also understand the context, which is really important for our interpretation of the text. So that's step number two. Step number three is genre, which is to learn about the ancient literary styles used by the biblical authors. And we talked about this last week, right? The Bible is one unified story. It's a collection of 66 books uh, written by over 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years, um, a long time ago. Um, But they wrote in a lot of different styles. And so it's important for us to understand the genre that we're reading because that's going to determine how we approach the text And it's going to determine our expectations of what we read. And so we want to change the way we read based on the genre. Can anybody tell me from that was here last week, what is the genre or the main genre of the book of Ruth? You said it. Yeah, narrative, historical narrative. It's a story. 43% of our, our Bible is historical narrative. It's probably one of the most common genres that we are used to. Can anybody tell me the specific type? I mentioned it's kind of like there's like a subgenre, kind of how I mentioned in the, the Jonah class, Jonah is considered a satire, even though it's a historical narrative. Can anybody remember what Ruth is? It's a comedy, meaning that it, it follows this pattern that it begins in great tragedy, but eventually it's going to be resolved and end in happiness or joy. So it's this comedy. So that also helps us a little bit with the expectation of how the author is telling this story. This is a little bit of a difficult question, but we also identified one other specific genre at the end of Ruth. Does anybody remember what that was? The very end of Ruth, we find what? If you want to turn there, maybe you can identify it just by what it is. It's a list of names, which the fancy word is just a genealogy. But a genealogy is technically a little bit different form than historical narrative. And the only reason I'm pointing it out is because it's it's actually going to be a little bit important, but we're going to save that for chapter 4, of course. But there is kind of a little bit of a genealogy there at the end, and that's important for us to identify. Now, if you turn to page 8 in your handout, there's a few bullet points as far as when we're thinking about historical narrative. And if you are here with us last week, Would anybody like to share maybe one thing that kind of stood out to them from that list? You could read it, of course, just from the list, but was there anything in particular that stood out to you when we were talking about how to read historical narrative that you think is important for those of us who were not here last week? I think they're all important. That's why they're there. So if anybody just wants to. (laughs) But any that stood out. Yeah. 
So historical narratives record what happened, not necessarily what should have happened. Right? That's really important. Yeah. Maybe one other person want to share something? Say that one more time. Okay, so yeah, we're, we talked about how to identify the conflict in historical narrative because the conflict is going to be the main kind of thrust of the story. And so it's important for us to identify what is the conflict that the rest of the narrative is going to be working towards its resolution, right? Um, does anybody remember in chapter one, we identified what is the main conflict of the book? Do you remember? In the first five verses, we identified it last week. The book of Ruth, the main conflict concerns a person, and who is that person? It's Naomi. Naomi is the main character in this book, although it's called Ruth. The title wasn't divinely inspired. It was just put on there later, but the main character is Naomi, and what is the conflict that the first five verses leaves us with Naomi that the rest of the book goes to resolve? Yeah, so what is her situation when she returns? Yeah, the tragedy of she has no husband and she has no sons. And for us today in the 21st century, that's sad. But it would, it's going to mean a little bit more for an ancient person. And I'm going to talk a little bit about why that's important for us to understand. Um, so yeah, the tragedy, the conflict is Naomi is now um, without hope. She is a, a sonless widow, and in the ancient world, that is the worst position you could possibly be in. That's the most vulnerable position you could possibly be in. So she is destitute. She is without hope. And the whole rest of the book is working to resolve that conflict. Because how does the book end? Do you remember? What do the townswomen say when Ruth bears a son? Whose son do they say the son actually belongs to? you remember? Yeah, they say a son has been born to Naomi for us, and we're like, wait a minute, that's, no, that's not how it worked. But in the ancient world, and we're going to talk about this again in chapter 4 a little bit more, and hopefully we'll understand the historical context of that. But Ruth is the main character, and the conflict, the main conflict of the book, is what is going to happen with Naomi. So we, we talked about the importance of plot. Thank you so much. That's really good. So today I want to talk just a few, I want to point out two more things that's important for us to understand when it comes to historical narrative. There's three main elements. The first is plot, but there's two other ones that are important, and that's going to be setting and uh, characters. So I'm just going to talk about this really quickly. So what do we talk, what do we mean by setting? Setting includes both where and when the story takes place. So where does the story take place and when does it take place? We want to make sure we identify those things. And one thing that's important with historical narrative is that locations in the biblical text often are more than just geographical markers. They often are deeply symbolical or symbolic. Is that the right word? So Egypt in the biblical narrative, anytime Egypt is mentioned, it's primarily a negative connotation because of what happened in Egypt with the people of God, right? They were enslaved in Egypt. So anytime Egypt is brought up, you should be thinking sad face, right? Really sad face. And so oftentimes, Places are more than just geographic. They are very symbolic and theological. So it's important for us to understand not just where it's happening, but what happened there previously in the biblical story. It's the same thing with time. Time is more than just a reference. It's also symbolic. So for instance, um, the number seven 
It can mean you have seven sons, but it also, in, from a Hebrew context, means complete. And so sometimes they use numbers not just for literal meaning, but also symbolic meaning. So that's something important for us to keep in mind. All right, so that's a little bit about the setting. And then the, the, one of the most important things to keep in mind with historical narrative is the characters. And the characters are the central point in the narrative. And one thing that's interesting in historical narrative is that characters are rarely ever described in detail. It's not like our modern narratives or story where we want to know exactly what they look like, all that kind of stuff. Rarely are they described. If you find in the text them being described, it's probably important. So there's going to be some characters in the biblical story that are described as handsome. That's important, not just because the author wants you to imagine this handsome person, but because there might have been characters before that were described as handsome. So if you read a character that's described, you're going to be like, is that person going to be similar to that previous handsome person, or are they going to be different? So it's setting you up and your expectations. So that's really important when it comes to characters. They're going to be used as vehicles for the author to communicate their message. It's the same thing in the book of Ruth. is that the characters are going to communicate and convey the message that the author has for their audience. So again, biblical narrative is not just, I just want to tell you what happened in history. I want to tell you why and what it means. Right? They're trying to communicate a message. Again, they're going, to, they're going to refrain from sermonizing or moralizing the characters. What they do is they present choices, they present dialogue, and then they want you to try to have to make a decision yourself. So again, it's important for us as Bible students to understand the whole biblical story. And again, it's a little bit overwhelming because sometimes you're not going to know whether or not this decision was good or what they said was correct, but you are the one who has to decide, and we're going to see that a little bit later this evening. So that's a little bit about setting and characters. And the reason why this is important is because as we read chapters 1 in the following weeks, 2, 3, and 4, we're going to talk about this and see how we can identify some of this in the text. Okay, so now we're going to go to step number 4, which is history, which is to discover the cultural and historical setting of the Bible. This week, we have to cover a lot of history, and I apologize. The following weeks will not be this intensive. The reason why is because we have to talk about the, the, the historical setting for the actual book as a whole, and that what we normally do is we normally point out two or three really key, important cultural information that you're going to find that appears in the specific chapter. So the first thing we're going to talk about is the historical setting of Ruth. And there's a few things that are important for us to identify. And uh, those are the author, the date, and the time. Now, it's a little bit complicated, but the author of the book of Ruth is anonymous. Uh, we don't know who necessarily wrote the book. Um, traditionally, it's been attributed to the prophet Samuel, but there's some people who doubt that. We don't know who wrote this book. When it was written at the earliest, it was probably written around the time period of King David, or later. The reason why is because in that genealogy, David is mentioned, and so it could not have been written any earlier than the time period of David. So it must have been written at least during David or after David's reign. When the book took place, it says in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, that it took place during the period of the judges. And most likely, according to that genealogy at the end, it took place in the year between 1125 and 1115 B.C., those dates aren't really that important for us, but we just need to know that it took place a long time ago during the period of Judges. And that's what we're going to be talking about in the next few minutes is 
what was the time period of the judges like? Because this is, this is the environment that the book of Ruth is taking place. <clears throat> and I'm going to go through this rather quickly, and I apologize. But this is really important because if we don't know what's happening in the period of Judges, we, we're going to miss out on a lot of the amazing things that the book of Ruth is showing us through these characters. The first thing we need to know is that after Joshua dies, Israel fails to completely take control of the promised land. One of our, my favorite Bible teachers, he comes and teaches in our schools in YWAM, uh, Dan Lewis, he describes uh, this period of time as a, as a theological record of failure. It's pretty much just talking about how bad Israel failed and how often. So the period of Judges is almost a 300-year-long period of just recording how bad Israel was. Israel's unfaithfulness to God's covenant leads to the oppression by other nations. And I have the verse references up here for if you want to look into this a little bit later. But what ends up happening is because they rebel against God, because they begin to worship idols and fall away from faithfulness to God, God allows other nations in and they become distressed because of the oppression. And then God has to raise up these temporary military leaders called judges. So the book is called the book of Judges. Don't think like Judge Judy. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about judicial judges. We're talking about temporary military leaders that God will raise up in order to bring relief from Israel's enemies. And so God raises up these judges. And in the book of Judges, I think there's 12 that they highlight, but more, like, more likely than not, there was more than just those 12. But Samson was uh, one of the famous. Deborah, another uh, famous judge during that period of time. The period of Judges is a continual downward, downward spiral of apostasy. It goes from bad to worse. That's the, that's the book of Judges. So it starts off bad, right? It starts off with Israel failed. Israel was unfaithful. To If you read the story in Judges chapter 19, it's one of the most brutal, horrific stories in the entire Bible. And just for time's sake, I'm not going to read it, but if you want to have fun with your time with Jesus tomorrow. Read Judges chapter 19. And that will help you understand a little bit more of the background and the context and the setting that this book is taking place in because it's just awful. And we're talking about the people of God that are participating in these things. We're not talking about pagan nations. We're talking about the people of God that are apostate and worshiping idols. The book of Judges is kind of interesting, and this will be important probably in chapter 4 of Ruth, but the book of Judges will repeatedly point for this desire, this need for a king, and it will repeat this phrase a few different times. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And if you read the book of Judges, you're like, yeah, no joke. Like, but it's a great summary of the book where everybody is just doing right, what is right in their own eyes, right? God had given them the law in Deuteronomy and they knew what was right in God's eyes. But because they were apostate, because they were unfaithful, they didn't want to do what God wanted them to do. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. And it ends up being a complete disaster for 300 years. And what's really cool about this is because this is the context 
that our three characters, our three main characters, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, where they're living, this time period is what they're living in. And what's really cool about this story is you're going to see that we have three people who are not living according to what is right in their own eyes, but they are living according to what is right in God's eyes. And you see the amazing results of that. And so this is the, the very bleak, very dark setting for this book. And you need to keep that in mind constantly as you're reading because it really helps you to appreciate these characters and what they're doing and why they're doing it, right? Because everybody around them is doing what is right in their own eyes except for these three characters that we know of. <clears throat> so that's a little bit about the, the period of Judges. That's like a five points of 300 years. So if you have any questions about that, uh, you can feel free to talk to me or my wife back there after class <laughs> or next week. All right, so the two other things that we're going to talk about that are kind of big picture is, um, number one is the Moabites, because one of our main characters in the book is a Moabite, and it's important for us to know who these people are, because the author mentions Ruth being a Moabite quite frequently, and that's kind of interesting. So here's a little bit of information about the Moabites, and this is in your handout as well. So the ancestors of the Moabites was Lot, the son of Lot, and Lot had two sons. And if you know this story, this is another not-so-good story about uh, some people, and they don't do the right thing. So Really quickly, the story of Lot is Lot is Abraham's nephew, and him and his wife and two daughters lived in a city called Sodom and Gomorrah. You read anything about Sodom and Gomorrah? Major sad face. Not a good place. <laughs> you don't want to be there. So what ends up happening is that God brings judgment on that place, but Lot and his two daughters, his wife almost made it, but she didn't. Weird story, but Lot and his two daughters survive. And his two daughters are desperate because they have no people to, um, to marry and to have sons by. So they get their father drunk and they sleep with their father. And as a result, one of the daughter's sons is this family. And that's the line of this family. So as an Israelite, when you think of a Moabite, happy face or sad face? Super sad, right? No good. No good, right? So if you're here last week, I'm going to talk about this happy face, sad face thing a lot because it's helpful for me. You, Moabite is just bad, like bad news. So that brings to life the character of Ruth. When the author says the Moabitess, you're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. A few other things. This is where Moab was in relationship to um, the nation of Israel. So if you look up on the top left, there's the city of Jerusalem. About six miles south of that is Bethlehem, which is where the story of Ruth takes place. And then that red line is the, the route that they believe that Naomi and her family took to go to Moab. It's about 70 to 100 mile journey. And Moab, the nation of Moab, is kind of on the southeastern part of the Dead Sea. So it's kind of Israel's neighbor. Also, that map is in your handout if you wanted to reference it later. Um, just a few other things about Moab that's important is when the people of Israel were um, delivered out of slavery from Egypt after they had been at Mount Sinai for a year. They were making their way into the promised land and they had to go through this land and the Moabites opposed them and attempted to 
get them cursed by this prophet Balaam, or Balaam, you can call him. So that's another really bad thing that this Moabite king did. They opposed the people of God. They did not help them on their journey. And in Deuteronomy, the the author of Deuteronomy, Moses, is going to bring this story up. Kind of in that same period of time as the Moabites uh, seduced a number of the Israelites into spiritual idolatry and sexual depravity as they were camped in that area. So again, another not-so-good move by the Moabites and their history with the Israelites. And so according to all of that, in Deuteronomy, because of what they did in opposing the people of God, the law actually forbid them into the assembly of the Israelites. So they were not supposed to be allowed into the people of God. If you were a Moabite, there was kind of this prohibition because of what happened during those events, which again is kind of interesting when it comes to Ruth, because Ruth is a Moabite. So that's a little bit of history about the Moabites, and that's who Ruth is. That's where, her, where she came from, that's where she grew up, and that's where the be- beginning of our story took place, right? Because Naomi and her family actually go to Moab for 10 years to escape the famine. So that's a little bit about Moab. So we've talked a little bit about the history of the period of Judges, briefly, and then the Moabites. And the last thing I want to talk about is what's called patriarchal culture. And I want to just stop here really quickly because this is kind of a buzzword in our culture. And so what I want us to do is just to make sure that we're not importing things from our day and age into the biblical text. Um, Because there's a lot of debate around patriarchal culture and how bad it is or how not bad it is and all that kind of stuff. We're not going to participate in that debate, but I just want to make sure that we recognize that we might have a little bit of a bias going into this. And so we just want to be as objective as possible to understand the culture that is taking place during the period of Judges and Ruth, okay? So what's important to know is that as a tribal society during this period of time, Israel's culture can be defined as patriarchal. That was the culture of the nation of Israel. It was a patriarchal culture. But the whole entire ancient world, the ancient Near Eastern world, was also patriarchal. So it wasn't not just exclusive to the nation of Israel, but this is the culture of everybody around them. It was patriarchal, which means that all authority and responsibility for the household rests on the patriarch or the oldest living male relative of the family. So that person held all the responsibility for the entire family to provide and to protect for their family. The oldest living male relative is the center of the household, like I said. They share all responsibility for their family. The family unit and the living space are built around the patriarch, so it was very much dwellings during that period of time were very like multi-family, multi-generational, and they were centered around the oldest living male relative. In Israel's patriarchal society, ancestral descent and inheritance were traced to the male line. So that's why it's really important to have sons, because they were the vehicle for receiving inheritance. Okay, so this is why in the, in the first few verses of Ruth, 
we just see Naomi lose everything, right? Not just her, her husband and her sons, but everything that goes along with it in their society is gone, and she is completely destitute and without hope. A woman's identity during this time, how she was defined by society, was, had to do with the men in her life. So it went this way. She was either, she was first, the daughter of her father, then she was the, the wife of her husband, and then she was the mother of her sons. That's just the way it worked during that time. That's how she would find her identity and her role in that culture. So that's a little bit about what ancient patriarchal culture looked like. Now, what I want to point out, too, is that some people might pose this question, was patriarchal culture something that was instituted by God, or was it just the culture that God used because that's what he had to work with, okay? So sometimes people read into it and say this was something God ordained himself, and maybe you have a problem with that. There's other people that say that was the dominant culture, and then God was working within that culture. So you're you're free to, to go either way. I tend to be like the latter. I think that was the dominant culture that God used. But one thing that's interesting to know during this time, right? So we're not talking about modern day patriarchy and all that, the connotation that comes with it. But in the ancient world, you guys, that when God was using this culture, something to know is that this was an amazing vehicle that God could use to make sure that the most vulnerable in society were taken care of. Because during this time, this was an, an agrarian society. This was a survival on a day-to-day basis. There was no social security. There, were, there was no government subsistence, right? So Naomi, when she becomes a widow and has no sons, you should think of her as somebody who is like a homeless person on our streets today. There is nobody. She has no ability to provide for herself, and she is just vulnerable, right? If you've ever interacted with people that live on the street, it's really sad because they're just so abused and so taken advantage of, right? That's Naomi's position. And so this culture provided a means of safety and security, and that was at God's heart in his law. He talks about taking care of the orphans and the widows and the sojourners and their distressed. And this was a system that God could use to make sure the least, the last, and the lost were taken care of. Again, was it instituted by God, or was it something that God used? But one thing to know is that when talking about this, the book of Ruth is going to demonstrate the best that this culture could give, right? Because the book of Ruth is a great demonstration of how amazing it can be when the people of God do what God asks of them and then the most vulnerable in society are actually taken care of. So that's a little bit about the patriarchal culture. Does anybody have any questions about the things that we've just discussed before we start uh, getting into the observation part of chapter one? Again, I know it's a lot of information, And I apologize, the following weeks won't be quite as heavy. But that's the backdrop for the entire book of Ruth. Yes. Orpah? Orphan. No. Because if you look in the text, um, Naomi says in chapter 1, like, go back to your mother's house. So they just had this decision of whether or not they were going to be loyal to Naomi or go back home and be kind of loyal to their own family. Yeah, it's a great question, though. 
Any other questions? Yes, sir. Um, I'll just say the text does not tell us, so I, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's a good question. If they were ever in relationship with one another. Um, what we do know is that in chapter 1, we see that Naomi makes, uh, uh, Ruth makes a decision to be loyal to Naomi and to go where Naomi goes without probably any expectation that she was ever going to return to her homeland, right, and to her family. Yeah, great questions. Anyone else? All right, so step number five is observation or observe, which is where we're going to notice the details of the text to discover what the text says. So it's important. We're not trying to figure out what the text means, right? That's interpretation. That's for step number six. And it's really important for us to realize that we have a tendency as we read to just interpret as we read. But at this point, we're just looking at all of the information. And then what we're going to do is we're just going to start asking questions and then use all of the details to try to answer the questions to the best of our abilities. And so this is why you have those colored pencils. Tonight, each table has colored pencils, and so we're going to use those, um, which I always think is kind of fun. And that's what I use in my study. You can see this is what yours are going to look like. I use colored pencils in my daily life. On my desk, I have a little thing with colored pencils. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look for a few things in chapter 1. And I'm going to give you a list of what those things are. And I'm going to give you a few minutes to kind of read through. And all you're going to do is either underline, highlight with a specific color these things. And that's, that's literally all we're going to be doing. It's pretty simple. So what I want you to do is I want you to try to identify the setting. So where does the story take place and when does it take place? We've already talked a little bit about it but you're going to try to identify those things. And so what I would suggest is you just pick one color for that and just, as you go, highlight those type of things. What you want to do, the second thing you're going to want to look for is who are the characters and are they described in any detail? Are the characters described in any detail? Again, you might want to pick a different color for that just so it's easy to identify later on. Um, this one what is the conflict and is it resolved? We already talked about that, so you don't need to necessarily try to identify that. If you want to mark it in the text, um, you are free to do so. And then the last two is repetition. So are there any words, phrases, or ideas repeated in the text? So repetition is going to be a really uh, key vehicle to, for the author to use to try to get their meaning and their point across. And so repetition is important for us. So words, phrases, ideas repeated in the text. Besides, also too, just to point out, with repetition, if you see a character being repeated like five or six times, you don't have to like identify them every single time unless you're learning something new about them, just for, for time's sake. <clears throat> and then the last one is contrasts. These are, are there anything, is there anything being contrasted to one another? So this could be people. People are often in historical narrative being contrasted to one another, whether by it's their actions, their thoughts, their description. Um, it could be a thought, an idea, or it could just be opposing words that are uh, in contrast to one another too. So those are going to be the things you're going to be looking for. So once again, you're going to try to identify when and where the story took place. So just color that when you see it. Who are the characters and are they described in any way? Then you're going to look for repetition, repeated words, ideas, characters, and then contrast. Are there any contrasts? Who or what is being contrasted? 
So those four things. Any questions about those or how I'm asking you to do it? All right, cool. Well, I'm going to give you guys probably 10 minutes or so. So take your time. Start in verse 1 and work all the way down through it. My suggestion is as you're reading, try to identify things as you go. And that way you save time instead of going through one color at a time. And if any point you have a question, just raise your hand. Myself or my wife can come around and kind of help you if you need any clarification.
No, this is not a test. You don't have to turn. Remember, there's no, there's no homework and there's certainly no tests. I know, right? In our, in our Bible schools, I was a big advocate for eliminating tests because I'm not a big fan of them. So we don't even have tests in our Bible schools. So. All right, so again, when we're observing the text, this is kind of when we're just slowing down, going back kind of verse by verse and just really combing through the text to just try to figure out what is going on in the text. It's like a detective looking at a crime scene. Remember, I used that example last week. And technically every single thing in there is an observation, right? These are just a few of the ones that are probably the most important for our chapter and historical narrative in general um, that for our time's sake, we're somewhat able to do. Um, but there's figurative language in there. There's all sorts of other really fun things. So if you observe something that wasn't one of these, that's great. Um, so what we want to do at this point is I just want to hear from a few of you guys, and I'm just going to maybe just ask, would somebody want to share some of the characters that they saw in the text? Remember, this is just what the text is saying. And just, tell, just say the verse reference so then that everybody can kind of follow along. And if somebody wasn't able to identify that, they can just mark it as we go. So characters. Who wants to share some of the characters that they saw or observed? Okay, so Elimelech in what verse? Okay. Yep, great. Who else? Just keep going. Just... Yeah, just in the first few, first few verses, who were some of the characters? Okay, Naomi? Yep, whoever that is. <laughs> yeah. And did, how are they described? <laughs> they're that word, yep, they're those people. Where are they from? Yeah, Bethlehem and Judah, cool. And then just the last few names you want to tell us? <laughs> Okay, Orpa and Ruth, and who are they? How are they described? Moabites. Yeah, they're Moabites. So they're, that's really important, right? Because we have characters. There's Naomi's family, and they're from Bethlehem and Judah. And then we have Orpa and Ruth, who are Moabites. Great. Any other people that you notice, or any other detail given about any of our characters uh, later on in the following chapter? Ruth? Yeah, so at the very end, there's like the whole town of Bethlehem was stirred, and specifically the women. Yeah, they kind of come and start asking Naomi questions. What's important to know is that in that, it's very figurative. The whole town was stirred. Um, Bethlehem has always been a really small town, and less than a few hundred people, and at this time, it was considerably less. This, we're talking about like a few families in Bethlehem. So it's a really, really small, really small town. Yeah, really good. Okay, so that's characters. What about the setting? Where is the story taking place and when? We, of course, we mentioned a few of those already, but did we miss anything in those first five verses? So where does the story begin? And what was going on during that time? Yeah, there's a famine. That's really important to understand, the famine Okay, and so they begin in Bethlehem and Judah, and then they make their way into Moab. And then the rest of the chapter kind of is them, Naomi eventually trying to work her way back into Bethlehem. Yeah. Any other information that you guys noticed? 
regarding place or time. Okay, yeah, so the fields of Moab, that's a place, yeah. Yeah, she heard in the fields of Moab that it says that God had visited his people, right? Now there's no more famine, so she heard about that in the fields, yeah, really good. Yeah, the, their mother's house. So Naomi tells Orpah and Ruth to go back to their mother's house. And then in verse 22, how does it end? How does chapter 1 end? Yeah, at the beginning of the barley harvest. That's important because it kind of is it's this book end that ties the whole first chapter together, Yeah. And at this point, we don't know if any of this is important. We're just noticing details. But one thing to keep in mind is, remember I told you that places also have meaning? So the book of Ruth ends with the genealogy of King David. And King David, do you know where he is from? Where is David's hometown? It's Bethlehem. So the readers and the author of this story know all about Bethlehem and the association with David. David is a happy face. So Bethlehem is happy face, right? Moab is sad face. Bethlehem specifically, Judah specifically, it's like those are, that's David's hometown. Those are David's people. That's a really good thing. So it has a little bit more uh, meaning. What about repetitions? Did you guys notice any words or phrases or ideas that were repeated in chapter 1? Died, yeah. <laughs> the first few verses, right? Died, died. The emphasis is like, how is the author trying to make you feel right now? Yeah, not good. There's a lot of death. That's sad, right? So, sad face. Yeah, really good. What else? Okay, so yeah, there's a lot of Moab and Moabite. You're kind of like, okay, we got it the first time. Why does the author keep talking about it? And why does he end Ruth the Moabite? At this point, we already know who Ruth is. We know Ruth is a Moabite, and she's the daughter-in-law. Like, it ends with that, and that's important. The author is continually identifying Ruth as a Moabite. Yeah, really good. What else? Yeah, Joseph? Yeah, so if you notice, the, the main word that's repeated is return or turn. In the first chapter, it's repeated eight times. Return or returned. And so that's really important because that repetition is, is repeated so often, it's cluing us in on kind of a main theme of chapter one, and it's this idea of returning. Yeah, really good. Anything else? Okay, yeah, so twos that are, two repeated, and it's always like relational. Yeah, relational dynamic, yeah, for sure. There's a lot of family dynamics happening in this book, yeah. Yeah, I mean, she's just repeating, and in light of that, right, like, what is she, what is she, what picture is she painting for Naomi and Orpah? Is it like a positive picture? No, it's so negative. She's trying to disassociate herself from them and just say, like, listen, there is no hope. Like, there's no sun. Like, just it's, everything about me is just terrible, right? She even mentions that a few different times. She talks about just, like, the hand of the Lord has been against me, right? It's just she just is very depressed about her situation, and rightfully so. Yeah. Anybody else see any repetitions that they wanted to discuss? Yeah, so in verse 13, she talks about how she's exceedingly bitter. 
And then when she returns, she says, you don't call me Naomi, which the word Naomi means delight. Don't call me delight. Marar is bitter. So don't call me delight. Call me bitter. So there's a play on words there, right? So yeah, that's how she feels. There's a lot of emphasis in chapter one about how Naomi feels. And the author is really trying to paint this picture of the situation of Naomi. And you're supposed to just be really sad. Right? Even in, even in this chapter, it talks about them crying, like the girls, like all crying. It mentions it twice. In verse, um, verse uh, 9, then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And then in verse 14, they lifted up their voices and wept again. That's just like in that paragraph, man, you're like, there's a lot of grief that is happening in the story. There's a lot of sadness that is happening in the story. Really good. What about contrast? Did you guys notice any uh, contrast happening in chapter one? Okay, so you have the dire situation of Naomi, and then you have this contrast of, like, Ruth and, like, how she plays into that whole situation. Yeah, really good. What were we talking about before that? You're like, we already talked about... Yeah, so the chapter begins, there was a famine, and then it ends barley harvest. And so that kind of wraps up this nice little neat, like, People describe Ruth like chapter 1 is scene 1, chapter 2, scene 2, scene 3, scene 4. It's nicely, a nice, neat, uh, well-told story. Yeah, really good. Any other contrast that you notice in chapter 1? Okay, yeah, so it starts with them leaving, and then contrasted, now they have returned. Yeah. Yeah, so she, Naomi says, I went away full but I came back empty. We might talk about this a little bit later, but do you think that that's a little bit ironic, kind of? Because how did the story begin? There was a famine. So like in a literal sense, she went away hungry, but in a symbolic sense, she went away full because she had all of her family. And now it's like this opposite. I'm actually hungry now, even though there's a barley harvest because of what happened. Yeah. Yeah, really good. What about characters that are being contrasted? Did you notice any characters? Yeah. Yeah, and Orpah, you're not supposed to view Orpah as like a, in a negative way. Like, originally she was planning on going with her. She just kind of was convinced by, by Naomi to go back to her home. And the big contrast is she leaves, but Ruth clings to Naomi. So there's a contrast. And it's, again, it's not a negative thing, but it's just contrasting and showing a little bit about the character of Ruth. Yeah, really good. Anything else before we move on to interpretations? Yeah, the contrast at the end with her name, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, so Orpah, when she leaves, she goes back to her mother's house and her family's gods, the Moabite gods, contrasted to Ruth, who is a Moabite, she actually, in a way, leaves her Moabite religion and her family 
and in a way is now associating herself with Naomi and, of course, Naomi's gods. Yeah, really good. That's a great contrast. Yeah. All right, cool. So what we're going to do now is, based off of everything we've observed in the text, all of that information, what we're going to do is move into step number six, which is, oh, that's such a fun thing. Anyways, I can't do it. I don't have time. Uh, Interpret, which is when we're going to use the details of the text that we've observed to explain what the text means. Now, if you were here last week, or if you've been to one of our other classes, when we talk about interpretation step six, who are we trying to figure out what it means for? Like, who are we asking why? What are we looking for? Are we asking, what does this mean to me in this step? No, we're asking first, what did it mean to the author their original audience, and the characters in the story, right? We have this tendency to kind of jump immediately to me. Like, now i got to figure out what this all means for me. Important principle is a text can never mean what it never meant. So we first have to understand what it originally meant. Then what we do is then we move into the application step where we discover what it means for us today. Okay, so in this step, we're trying to figure out, put on our ancient author, reader, culture, character, mindset, and we're going to start interpreting towards them first. <clears throat> so what I've done is I've just, as I was studying this, I kind of came up with some questions that I'm going to have you guys discuss um, with somebody next to you. And I know it kind of be a little bit intimidating, but this is just your thoughts, right? So using the background information, using the information from the text, you're just going to try to put together some thoughts using that information to see if you can come up with some sort of uh, conclusion. Now again, we don't know the text doesn't say there's a right or wrong answer to some of this. So what we do is we just use as much evidence as we can to try to come to those conclusions ourselves. Okay, so I don't want you to be intimidated of like, I don't know the right answer. This is a discussion. What we want to do is create an environment where we can learn from one another. We can learn together because that's what the Bible, that's how the Bible was originally written to be uh, read and understood. Okay, so interpretation. This is the first question. And again, it's based off of things we've already observed in the text. And so what I want you guys to do is I want you to see if you can kind of come up with some, some ideas behind this. Why does the author begin the story mentioning the period of the judges and this famine? So we, again, think in light of the whole book and who the book revolves around. Why do you think the author gives us this information? And how does that contribute to our understanding of the book and the characters in the book, okay? Does that make sense, that question? All right, so turn to the person next to you and just start talking about some of the ideas that you have.
back together. And I always hate breaking up discussion because I can hear you guys talking, which is awesome. Um, so the question was, based off of the setting of the book, the author includes this detail that technically they didn't have to. So why did the author, why do you think the author gave us this information, gave the readers this information of the setting? The book of Ruth takes place during the time period of the judges and the famine. What do you, what do you guys talk about? What did you guys discuss? What were some of the things that you, you thought of? So great. So the author is saying, hey, you know about that period of time. Now, this is when that took place. So what would maybe be your expectations of what you're about to read, right? Because the Israelites are the people and the judges that are being bad. And now we're talking about a, a story about Israelites. So you would expect maybe what? You would expect them to be maybe disobedient, maybe a little, you would expect there to be maybe a little bit more struggle than what we see as far as faithfulness to God. I think that would might be a part of it. Yeah, really good. What else? Okay, so beyond the famine, you're saying maybe things were so gnarly that they're like, it's also a famine, but there's also just everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Okay, I never thought about that, but possibly, yeah. I like that thought, yeah. Yeah. I think um, mentioning famine, uh, hunger is a great motivator. Get fed. Yeah. And therefore, they're looking for leadership. Yeah. Okay, really good. So famine, yeah, again, it's an agrarian society, and your day-to-day life, that's why Jesus says, man does not live on bread alone, right? Like, that's how they lived. Every day you woke up to try to feed yourself so then you could go to sleep and the next day do the same thing. So when there's no bread, you're going to die. And so, yeah, they, they, there's a desperation there. What's interesting to note is that, no, I'm not going to talk about that. It's too much. Yeah, really good. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, there's a little bit of information in my mind, but I was like, ah, I don't have time for that. Maybe one other person want to share what they thought? Uh, okay, so really quickly, <laughs> Abby's going to be looking at me like, you can't say this. In Deuteronomy, when God made a covenant with his people, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, there were certain signs that God would give his people to try to get them when they were disobeying the covenant to return, and famine was one of them. So if there's a famine in Israel, you know it's because the people are being disobedient to God. And so one of the things that also gives you information, when it says famine— you're never like, if you read Deuteronomy, you know there's never going to be a famine in the land unless the people are in disobedience. So that's another indicator. Yeah. Okay, good. Sorry. I didn't know if I could do it simply, but um, yeah, same thing with plagues. Pestilence, plagues, yeah. And the point, the point with that, you guys, is because it was supposed to be reminders for the people of what they were doing so that they returned to God. So keep that in mind, returned. Okay, good. What else? Anybody else want to share anything about this? Yeah, Joseph. Yeah, really good. So, okay, then maybe that's why he let them marry Moabite women, which is something that they probably really weren't supposed to do. So yeah, it's a little bit suspect. Um, the text doesn't tell us, but most likely it was because that there was actually 
like there was no famine during that place. And if you can look at pictures of like ancient Moab and it's very like lush and green, but where Bethlehem is, it's like a desert. If you look at pictures of it now, there's like, it just, you have to have rain. And in Moab, you, didn't, you weren't totally dependent on rain. So there was more likely that there was no famine going on there when there was in Bethlehem and Judea. Yeah. Yeah, so really, really great thoughts, you guys. I'm glad. Again, this question, there's nothing like majorly profound about this, but it just gets us, gets us thinking of why the author is including these things. And I think it does set us up an expectation, right? So you're like, all of this stuff is happening that's just really bad. So you would just kind of expect more of the same. But the book is just a complete contrast, right? where you have three people that are not doing what is right in their own eyes. And that's a little bit unusual, especially with one particular person who's a Moabite. That would be something that you would never expect as a reader. Of all people, a Moabite is the most faithful person that's, that's living in this time period. That's kind of mind-blowing. So it is, it's just a part of telling the story. It's a part of ex- uh, setting up the reader and then helping them. And I think it's also cool. I was thinking about this today. Um, you know, uh, Jesus, and then later Paul talks about this, how we as, as God's people are supposed to shine like stars in darkness or in a wicked and perverse generation. The period of Judges was a wicked and perverse generation. And you have these three characters that are standing out like these stars. And I just think they're such a great model of what we should be like as the people of God in the midst of things around us that don't look so good, let's just say. Yeah, really good. Okay, we're just going to do one or two more. Uh, Sorry. Let me think really quickly. Uh, We're going to go to this one. Why do we think the author mentions this repetition of return or returned eight times in this chapter? So the word return is repeated eight times. This is the same word that would be used for repent. So repent or return is kind of the same idea. It's just this idea that you're just turning around and going the other way. You're going this way and I'm turning around. This is me repenting. I'm not saying that's what necessarily is going on here, but it's the same kind of idea. So what do we think that the author is trying to communicate by this repetition? Why do they keep mentioning? Why did they just mention it once? And then they returned. Talk about that amongst yourselves. What are some things that you think the author is trying to communicate uh, through this repetition in the text? Talk to the person next to you and see if you can come up with any uh, good ideas.
Think about how do you think Naomi demonstrates returning, or what does the author tell us about how she returns, and then also Ruth. What does it say about how Ruth returned, or what did it look like for Ruth to return? And just kind of keep that in mind as you talk. almost time to go, but I know we're going to go over just a few minutes. If you have to leave, you can leave. It's not, I promise, it's not rude or anything like that. Uh, we'll end in a minute. Okay, I want to hear from you guys, though. What, did, what were some thoughts that you guys had? Because this is kind of an open-ended kind of question, so I want to hear from you guys. What do you, what do you think? What were some thoughts? I, you guys were talking, so you got to have some. Yeah.
Yeah. Yeah. In order to like move forward and that there's a sense of renewal and like ability to walk in that moment after the fact. Mm-hmm. And so like for Sam is the harvest and renewal to return Yeah. 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 That's really good thoughts. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that's happening with Naomi and Ruth returning and it's kind of the same, but it's different. Yeah. And what does that actually look like for them to return? And what does the author want you to think of like when they're returning? Is it just, yeah, she literally physically just returned or is there something else, maybe a spiritual dynamic or spiritual aspect of her and Ruth actually returning to the land? Yeah. Really good. Anything else? Yeah. And then, and then also, but from her. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because Ruth is also, she's returning, but it's like, kind of like, well, she's not returning because she never was from there. But in a way, she's returning because she's turning from Moab, Moabite family, Moabite gods, and she's turning to a Israelite faith, right? Like she's adopting, she she may not really have quite an understanding right now, but she is in a way saying, I am leaving all that I have and I'm returning. So she, Ruth in a way, like in this non-literal way is embodying what it looks like to return or to repent, right? Because sometimes we think of repentance as a prayer that we pray, but that's not actually what repentance is. It's not saying I'm sorry necessarily. It's actually you changing something, a behavior or a belief, that's true repentance, right? And so Ruth, in a way, like, is the embodiment of what true repentance looks like, which is ironic because she's a Moabite in the midst of a a people that know the truth that just refuse, right? So it's like there's so much to think and consider. Yeah, really good. Anything else? Yeah, Zach. Yeah. I, I like that thought a lot. And that was one of my questions that we didn't have time to get to, is the first five verses, I think, are supposed to invoke you to ask the question, was them leaving to go to Moab a good thing or a bad thing? And I think the results show 
that it was actually not what they should have done. And in a way, Naomi's return is sort of this act of repentance. Again, we're not saying that it's right or wrong, but I think the author wants you to ask that question. I think you kind of got to the heart of it. It's like, I think in light of all the information, we know that they should not have left the land. And when they did leave the land, things got really bad. And then when they return, what happens, right? It's that arc of the comedy. It's really bad. And then guess what? It turns. And that whole, the whole time they're in the land, things just get better and better and better. So I think you're on to something there. Yeah, really good. Okay. You guys are awesome. I have a lot more questions we don't have time for. But before we leave, a few quick application things for us to think about because the goal is application. It's a, I promise you it's the goal, but it just takes a while to get there. But we only have an hour to study it, and then you have the next seven days to apply it to your life. And so these are some application questions that I just came up with based off of the things we discussed. And you can come up with all sorts of things yourself, but I just want to pose a few questions for you to consider and think about. So this has to do with that repetition of repenting or returning. So my question that I pose to myself is, is there an area in my life that God is calling me to repent of? Where do I need to return to God? Right? We're learning about what it looks like to return to God or to repent. So therefore, let's translate that to our own life. God, Holy Spirit, stop and ask the Spirit of God, is there an area in my life that I need to return from, that I need to repent from. There's an area, there's a way that I've been believing, there's a way that I've been behaving that I know is not what you want for me. Holy Spirit, would you show me? So that's one of them. Don't bother with that one because that has to do with interpretation we didn't get to. Sorry. Some of these have to do with interpretation that we didn't talk about. Didn't talk about. Um, sorry, there's a glare. Okay, last question at the very bottom. You can look at those because those have to do with the text too. The last question that I want to ask, and again, this has to do with the big picture of the book, but we've seen it in the period of the judges and then the period that we're seeing with Ruth, is that do I believe that God wants to use me in the mundane? Because we see in the book of Ruth that it's just people doing mundane things that they know they're supposed to do. And God never shows up and says, Ruth, do this. Naomi, do this. Boaz, do that. They're just doing the most faithful thing that they know how to do, and it's really quite boring, right? They're picking wheat, and they're taking sandals off their feet, and there's some odd stuff. But it's God showing up in the mundane and using them in extraordinary ways. So this question I have to ask myself, do I believe that God wants to use me in the mundane, the everyday grind of the nine to five or whatever that looks like in your life that sometimes you get frustrated with and you're like, I just want to do great things for God. But God has us all where we're at for a reason. And there's people that God wants us to be a light to in our particular spheres. Do I live my life expecting God to work in and through my life, right? This is important. Do we have an expectation that God wants to use us in our everyday life? And pray and ask God for expectancy that God wants to use you in amazing ways because the book of Ruth is about God using three people living 3,000 years ago in the desert. And what God does is that he uses these three people to eventually bring about Christ. Like this is the family of Jesus. So these people God uses to bring about salvation for the whole world in these mundane 
situations. So those are a few things to kind of keep in mind as we reflect on chapter one. I know that's a lot, actually, right? But my encouragement for you guys as we leave here is in your time with the Lord this week is just to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you about how you can respond uh, to one of those things in light of chapter one. And I'm going to pray, and then we will get out of here. So Holy Spirit, we just thank you so much for um, (laughs) being with us. We thank you that you are the one who inspired this book. And I am I don't understand how it is that a book that's like about 3,000 years ago can have so much profound implications for our life today. It, it really blows my mind. And we just thank you that your gift is a word. We thank you, Lord, that we have a community of believers that we can learn from, that we can hear from, that we can talk to and just learn, God, and help push each other more towards you, God. And we pray that your spirit would empower us to be able to respond appropriately to the word that you've given to us tonight. God, let our lives be like those of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. God, that you use in the everyday circumstances, God, even if there's darkness around us, God, that you can use us as a light to bring hope and reconciliation to a broken world. We love you, Jesus, and our our aim is to serve you and to love you. And um, we pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.